This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. Today's podcast episode is a GHIL lecture by David Kuchenbuch, Assistant Professor at Justus Liebig University Gießen, on mediating globalism in the 20th century, the cases of R. Buckminster Fuller and Arno Peters. How do people in the past understand globalism? In his lecture, David Kuchenbuch takes a closer look at media representing global connections and differences. In doing so, he introduces us to the American designer R. Buckminster Fuller and the West German historian Arno Peters. Buckminster Fuller and Peters both rose to prominence as mediators of globalism after the Second World War. Yet their approaches were very different. Fuller epitomized a highly optimistic globalism based on notions of technological progress typical of the 1960s. Peters's work, by contrast, resonated with a more self-critical globalism, which gained traction in the 1970s. David Kuchenbuch shows that analyzing the history of globalism through the prism of media and biography will point us to important shifts in the 20th century political cultures. Thank you very much for the invitation to this lovely place and the chance to present some of my research here. You've heard it before. What I'll talk about today is the results of my most recent research project, the German Habilitation, which has been published already with Austrian-German imprint Bülau last summer. And in line with the overall theme of the Autumn Lectures, Intellectual Histories of the Global, my aim today will be to address an aspect of global thinking which I find is rather under-researched or overlooked in the field, the dimension of visual media. That, of course, is what the title of my book points to, which is based on a wordplay that only works in German, I guess. Weltbildner is combining the phrase Weltbild, which means world image, but also something resembling ideology, with the word to build or to sculpt. Now, I should say that even though I'll be talking about published results today, it's not my intention to just plug my book, maybe a little. As you well know, it's often after finishing a project that one begins seeing the bigger picture. And more importantly, I'm under contract to write another book for Hamburger Edition, a short introduction to the history of global thinking in the 19th and 21st, 20th and 21st century, which is aimed at a broader readership. So for that reason alone, I'm very interested in your thoughts on how, and I'll quote the description of this lecture series, how we can relate the emergence of global consciousness as a historical phenomenon to how we as historians frame globality as a theoretical problem and maybe a moral one as well. So by way of introduction to what I'll be talking about in the next 40 to 45 minutes or so, let us quickly turn away from the book towards the image that I chose for its cover design. Let's take a close look at this document. Clearly what we're seeing here is a rather crude, hand-drawn thematic world map. Created in America in 1973, what is striking is the strange format of the map, the unusual orientation of the continents, What we see here is less an upside-down world, although seeing the world differently is clearly part of the endeavor, but rather a world island emphasizing connection. The map, of course, is based on Buckminster Fuller's Dymaxion design, which I'll talk about more in a minute. 
but importantly, it conveyed a message which Fuller would not have liked. In fact, one that ran counter to all that he was trying to demonstrate. And the author of this map, one Ted Hilbika of Pennsylvania, was clearly concerned with questions of global redistribution, in this case of nutritional proteins available to humans. A proposal for balancing the world diet, it portrays globality as a sort of zero-sum phenomenon within a closed world, or better, a world that could be made more fair. Yet Fuller's whole life, at least as he saw it in retrospect, evolved around the very opposite idea, the idea of having your proteins and eating them, if you will. Or to use his own words, his life evolved around technological means of doing more with less, as he put it, deliberately misquoting modernist architect Mies van der Rohe. What we have here in the proverbial nutshell is the theme of my book. Its main argument is concerned with the shift towards a new, a more moralistic, localized kind of global consciousness, or in short, and globalism in parts of Western society. One, in fact, much more easily embodied by Arno Peters, the other protagonist of my book. That said, both Fuller and Peters applied visual media to make people think harder about the global, media which, as we shall see, stemmed from rather different contexts. In Fuller's case, this context was American exceptionalism, if not manifest destiny, which he subscribed to in the 1930s when he began positioning himself as a public intellectual and global thinker, which makes it all the more ironic that his map was used as an educational device which points to global injustices perpetuated by the American standard of living in the 1970s, as the example shows. So clearly this is an attempt at introducing the protagonists of my book through the back door. I still feel a bit uncomfortable having written a double biography of sorts, not least since my book is far from an exhaustive account of two lives dedicated to building a better world. Rather, it's a contextualization of two professional lives geared towards being perceived as working towards that goal, or at least as towards educating about the global, if driven by changing ideas about what that actually meant. A story thus of intellectual flexibility, even opportunism, and self-fashioning, as we shall see. But also of visions of the global, which were coherent enough to allow for other people's moral selving, which, and that's why I showed you uh, the cover image, I was in fact most interested in when I began working on this book. But enough of the insinuations. Who are we talking about? What is it that made German historian, publicist, and cartographer Arno Peters, and American designer, philosopher and architect Fuller, which we see here around the same age, famous. Since Fuller is probably more of a household name, here I'll start off with Peters, seen on the left in striking pose. Arno Peters was born in 1916 in Berlin into a family of socialist activists. Nothing would have pointed to his becoming a historian and revolutionizing the world map, certainly not in the do-it-yourself fashion which is indicated here. Peters being photographed with watercolors and dividers, at his home in Bremen. That said, at first glance, Peter's globalism is easier to explain. With both his parents active in the Communist Party and the League Against Imperialism in the 1920s and 19, early 1930s, Arno grew up in the highly stimulating culture of Weimar working class youth organizations. His internationalist socialism, however, always remained somewhat idiosyncratic. Since his teenage coincided with the advent of the Nazi regime, his experiences in the labor uh, movement were abruptly cut off. And while his parents remained political, his father being incarcerated in the late 1930s for subversive comments at his workplace, Peters had a more ambivalent relationship with the powers that were. A talented photographer, 
he established himself as a freelancer working for the Berlin Yellow Press in the 1930s and traveled far, as far as the US, in fact, where he was able to obtain an internship at Hollywood due to his mother's connections to emigre film people, which he had worked with as a secretary to William Münzenberg's socialist press empire in the early 1930s. Upon returning to Germany right before the outbreak of World War II, into which he wasn't drafted because he had a polio-induced handicap, Peters first worked as a junior producer for the gleichgeschaltete film industry to then begin studying Zeitungswissenschaft, which is the equivalent of today's journalism or publicistic, in 1941. In the last days of the war, he was able to defend a dissertation on the function of film in leading the public towards higher goals. A rather opportunistic topic, it may seem, but one which Peters dealt with in a striking fashion, without any references to Nazism, but rather to an abstract future world society. That said, the approach to influencing the public, which he developed here, we might just call it propaganda, stayed with him well into the 1970s when he propagated the new view of the world that is of most interest here. In the meantime, in the post-war decade, however, Peters made a name for himself as a rather controversial global historian, as we shall see in a minute. Only in his 50s did he emerge as a cartographer of sorts, without ever having studied cartography, a fact which he embraced, remaining an outsider all of his life, which explains how he was able to turn professional criticism of his work into an asset in the 1970s and 1980s. Peters was gladly taking on the role as underdog or counter-expert, so important to leftists and left-leaning people in this period. Similar to Peters, Richard Buckminster Fuller, senior in the early 1940s, he later dropped the moustache, was a kind of black sheep. Born in 1895 into a moneyed old East Coast family near Boston, he was rather unsuccessful well into his 1940s as an entrepreneur in the building industry. Yet he soon became one of the most celebrated architects of his time due to his development or rather successful propagation of the so-called geodesic domes, futuristic globe-like structures made from light metal beams, which especially in the 1960s were associated both with space age technology and with hippie esotericism. The dome's easy-to-erect mandala-like structure and grid allowed both for meditation and practices of self-building, sparking a dome boom of sorts in the dropout communities of the American West. But one should look past for a celebrity as an architect, which peaked when he designed the U.S. Pavilion in the 1967 Expo World Fair in Montreal. Fuller first and foremost was a public intellectual, making his money through public lectures and books based on these lectures which almost always evolved around harnessing cosmic energies to make every man on earth a success, as he put it. This began in the 1920s with business brochures, which became more and more fantastic or rather escapist, the less likely they were to be put into practice. Indeed, at some point in the mid 1930s, Fuller discovered that there was a reputation to be made from being perceived as a futurist, even a prophet in the bohème circles of Manhattan, where artists mingled with intellectuals, journalists and New Deal progressives. The global entered Fuller's thinking when he was fantasizing about the worldwide shipping of prefabricated family homes, a global market, if you will, a modernist fantasy which included dropping off lightweight buildings by zeppelins and airplanes, ideas which he soon began substantiating by highly unusual world maps and global statistics. Indeed, the title of his very first book, the 1938 book, Nine Chains to the Moon, points to humanity's entitlement to thinking in planetary terms. Highly optimistic, the book mirroring 
for less public persona, was making the point that it was possible to make the world work for everyone. Influenced by sci-fi thinkers such as H.G. Wells, but also the evolutionary reasoning by the likes of Claude Bracton, Teilhard du Chardin, Fuller held that mankind would only have to more consciously seize its intellectual powers to transform the world by means of technology, knowledge, and information. There was enough to go around for everyone. Conflicts about scarce resources would be futile as soon as humanity realized that it was perfectly positioned to make more efficient use of the resources of the earth. In fact, it became Fuller's credo to show how finally taking evolution in his or her own hands, the so-called design scientist was making politics obsolete. And this can-do approach presented in a highly individualistic manner will actually frame his own life as an experiment soon proved irresistible to many people, especially young Americans in the emerging counterculture, given their skepticism regarding Cold War politics and the unease with corporate America's normalizing influence on everyday lives. But before looking at the public perception of our two Weltbildner, I should maybe say how I came to look at them as embodiments of globalism or globalisms. This came about almost by accident. I had written an article on Peters after taking some time off another project and out of mere curiosity looking at his papers in the Berlin Staatsbibliothek. When I stumbled upon Fuller some time later, I was struck by the apparent similarities, less between the two lives, but rather between the products associated with Peters and Fuller. And to sort of emulate this discovery, I will now show you a lot of images. Uh, I'm of course happy to return to some of them in the Q&A, at least since some of them are very detailed, even cluttered and not always easy to read. Peters is probably most famous, even notorious, for another strange world map, the Peters projection seen here in all its glory in its first commercially available incarnation from 1974. I will not go into cartographic detail here, since this is neither the point of the talk nor of my book. What's most important is that the type of projection Peters chose for his map led to stark distortions in form, which are most clearly seen in Africa and South America, which of course served to focus people's attention on the regions of what was soon to be called the Global South. So this was the result of his privileging one aspect of map projection over another. Peter's projection, as he never tired of pointing out, was an equal area map, which meant that all territories of the Earth were presented in the same relations to one another size-wise as on the surface of a globe. What his map clearly wasn't was, of course, accurate in terms of form. In fact, it was directed against the maps most widespread at this time, which had fidelity of form and, Peters claimed, were all variations of the Mercator map, Mercator. This, Peters held, was no surprise. The Mercator map, first developed in rudimentary form by early modern cartographer and geographer Gerardos Mercator, he claimed, transported the ethnos and Eurocentric biases first established in the age of exploration. Europe especially was much too large in comparison with other world regions. Of course, given the large number of equal area maps available at the time of the launch of his map, Mercator was mostly surfing as a sort of straw man to Peters. And indeed, cartographers were quick to point out that Peters scandalized a cartographical non-problem. But that did not stop him from publishing large numbers of graphics like this one, exaggerating Mercator's flaws, such as the misleading placement of the equator and extreme distortions in size. We shall see how this focus on Eurocentristic biases and Western self-aggrandizement fit in extremely well 
with the debates of the 1970s, both on the international stage and within political milieus in the Western world. But let me first turn to Fuller, the aforementioned Dimexian, seen here in the most widely distributed design, which other than Peter's work was an actual innovation. Due to a sophisticated method of converting geodesic data, the Dimexian Air Ocean World, first published in Life magazine in 1943, could be glued together as a globe or used as a flat map by combining its puzzle-like parts, allowing for permanent recenterings of the world image and thus for the creation of different worldviews, as he called it. For instance, as the article in Life demonstrated, one could combine the map modules to better understand the a quote, land lover perspective of Nazi Germany geopolitics or the Pacific-based strategies of the Jap empire. But even more importantly, historical worldviews could be created too, such as that of the sea-based British empire or even the Atlantic-focusing Mercator world. Fuller clearly struck a chord. The life issue became the best-selling of the Mac to date. And this had much to do with the fact that the US experienced an unprecedented interest in maps at the beginning of World War II, which included not only maps of the European theater, but also highly innovative so-called air age geographies, especially polar projections, pointing out the close distance between Europe and the US, which was claimed could soon prove detrimental to the neutral country. There was also an interesting dynamic of innovation and democratization. Many designs were based on the idea to use all means available to communicate with the public which was expedited by the fact that European emigre visual designers' expertise became increasingly available, especially in New York. Fuller was immersed in all this at the time while working as an economic advisor for Fortune magazine. I cannot dwell on this either. I just want to point out how different to letter understandings of Fuller's maps this context is. You will also have noticed the large time span of 30 years between the launch of Peter's and Fuller's maps, as well as differences regarding their functions. While Peter's interventions aimed at correcting ethnocentrism, Fuller was all about global connections and intellectual flexibility. And I shall return to this and how this connects to what historians such as Duncan Bell have called competing globalisms in a minute. But first, again, I want to stress that my book is not a history of cartography. What struck me and fascinated me is that both Fuller and Peters never stopped at map making. On the contrary, their maps were the outcome of historical visual thinking, if you will, of their work on timelines. Let me start with Peters again. In 1952, he published the so-called Synchronoptische Weltgeschichte or Synchronoptical World History, World Chart, a work more reminiscent of early modern works by the likes of Joseph Priestley, for instance. I find Peters' Opus Magnum fascinating, structured vertically by columns representing years and horizontally by a color code differentiating historical developments in the field of economy, intellectual life, politics, religion, wars, and revolution, it is most of all an attempt at objectivizing world history by making the reader herself come to conscious conclusions regarding the synchronicity of cultural milestones being set in all world regions. What is also fascinating is that the roots of this chart can be traced back to Peter's personal preparations for a test to enter Berlin University in 1941. Initially, his chart helped him memorize historical dates. Yet from this evolved after laborious work collecting world historical data, a medium which was clearly an attempt to combine both his internationalist outlook and trends towards universal history prevalent in Europe after the war. 
as well as a general turn towards the factual rather than the mythical in German historical thinking, which explains why it received funding and financing both by the American occupation authorities and a number of culture ministries of the lender in the recently established Federal Republic of Germany. Ironically, the latter fact contributed to the fierce media debate that started soon after the book was published. Journalists discovered that much of Peter's biographical information could be seen as communist and anti-clerical. Interestingly, the actual merits of the book, the fact that it did reserve an unprecedented amount of space for non-European cultural accomplishments, as you may be able to read on the right side, was largely overlooked, quite contrary to the debates on the Peters map some 20 years later. Fuller too was a keen producer of timelines, albeit ones which mostly demonstrate the role of technology in shrinking and integrating the world. What we see here is just one example of a large number of charts, diagrams, animated films, and other mixed media projects Fuller came up with between the 1940s and the 1970s, all of which point to the same basic principle. According to Fuller, technological advances and practical knowledge especially that which made the most of the specific geographical circumstances of human populations, such as the resources available to them or the ocean currents at a specific location, had enlarged the respective population's physical radius and thus increased the chances of intercultural contact with other human groups. And with this, the likeliness of reciprocal learning and this kind of adaptive tool use driving forward humanity's self-evolution fuller held had recently turned into an exponential curve, as you can see down there, one that could be interpreted quite literally in the space age, making use of super fast, even invisible means of communication, such as radio waves, radar, and so forth. Man was about to colonize, or rather utilize, spheres of the Earth never reached before, and thus he never tired of claiming, providing every man on Earth with a decent standard of living should be in reach as well. To follow all that one needed to do was to communicate this insight, to make sure that an ever-growing number of practical philosophers, as he called them, participated in the process of design science, further accelerating the curve. Fuller was urgently aware of the merits of making a spectacle of this process, and he never came closer to this goal than in 1964, when he was asked by the United States Information Agency to design the U.S. presentation for the aforementioned World Fair in 1967 in Montreal. The Expo uh, exhibition did, in fact, make him world famous, since he was able to deliver the design for the largest geodesic dome built to date, which housed pop art paintings, as well as NASA equipment. However, his original proposal was rejected, interestingly, since it came much closer to what Fuller actually wanted to do and held dear. In fact, what he had wanted to construct was the so-called World Game Arena. The idea being that in this stadium of sorts, an automated Dymaxion map would be hooked up to computer storage and even electronical networks, which would feed it with global data. Accomplished individuals, world men as he called them, would then play a great logistics game on the surface of the earth, the map functioning as a display, patterning by means of thousands of tiny light bulbs the results of the respective strategies that players chose for exploiting world resources establishing new power grids and so forth in order to find the best strategy of making the world work for everyone. Interestingly, and I'm still talking about fascinating similarities here, at the very same time, Peters too was involved in turning his history chart into a walk-in immersive experience. Like the world game arena, the Synchron Opticum was never realized, 
but it was embraced by officials of the German Labour Union Association, DGB, who planned to build it in Sprockhöfel, of all places, in the Ruhr area, only to be cut short due to the lack of funding. What was most striking to me, however, is the extent to which both Peters and Fuller's lofty ideas and products fed into educational projects, as can be seen here. On the left side, we see the first of a number of semi-official, even unauthorized, small-scale world games, which soon proved rather worrisome for Fuller, threatening to corrupt his optimistic message, as I shall show in a minute. On the right, we see a West German primary school group building up an appropriate worldview from scratch, we might say, with the help of a Peters map puzzle. And this leads me to the second part of my talk. I said earlier, that I'm not only interested in the different globalisms uh, which we see in Fuller's and Peter's media, but also in the convergence of these globalisms during the 1970s. In my book, I therefore shift the focus from Fuller's and Peter's products and their intellectual roots to the buyers, the users, the people drawing inspiration from and talking about Fuller and Peter's. This time I'll start with Fuller. Many biographical accounts of his work to date buy into his self-fashioning, a lone genius myth, if you will, which could not be further from the truth. From the mid-1940s on, Fuller was heavily dependent on large numbers of research students, assistants, and other willing collaborators, which formed his first audience, but also became a factor to be reasoned with their interpretations of his work, taking on a life of their own. The stages of technology diagram I showed you a minute ago is a direct result of his working for Fortune magazine, which in the early 1940s collected data from all over the world to make the point that a new frontier, an intellectual and scientific rather than a geographical frontier, was imminent, technology opening up a cornucopia of material wealth for all of humanity. Fuller inherited the respective database and took it with him when he accepted a position as a tenured design professor at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale in the early 1960s where this collection formed the basis of his so-called world resources inventory. At SYU, Fuller worked with his team on establishing what he called a geoscope, many strange terms coming up here, making use of the brain power and technical know-how of collaborators such as British sociologist turned designer John McHale. He utilized the cartographic calculations originally developed for turning the sphere of the earth into a flat map to build electrified globes, or rather spherical displays, where geographical points could be precisely addressed to display data on world developments and even extrapolate the results of planning decisions. Architectural historian Mark Wigley speaks of glorified TV sets, which served as time machines in a way. Fed with the data, McHale and others kept collecting by mail on topics such as technological innovation, resource localization, and new modes of communication. These displays were to simulate different scenarios for providing the world with food, energy, and so on. Clearly part of the future boom of the 1960s, Fuller and his team were in fact in the process of developing a world model, a world computer model, but one very different from the likes of Jay Forrester's World 3 project at MIT, which as you may know, laid the basis for the 1972 Limits to Growth report to the Club of Rome. For one, Fuller's geoscopes were to communicate the optimistic mantra of technological solutionism. Secondly, they were to be as easy to understand as possible, making use of man's preference for visual communication to drive home the message that the future was indeed bright. Yet, ironically, it soon became clear that computer networks 
and digital display technology evolved at a much slower pace than projected by the Carbondale Group. And this had the Fuller Group work on much smaller preliminary projects, which proved rather unsatisfactory. John McHale's 1964 geoscope is interesting, but it compares rather unfavorably to the mini-Earth Fuller dreamt up some 10 years earlier, which was to be constructed vis-a-vis the newly built United Nations headquarters, where it was meant to reflect and thus enhance the quality of decision-making by the UN by means of real-time projections of its effects, for instance, on global trade volumes. And he was taken seriously for this. He was actually demonstrating this to the UN officials. In fact, out of the frustration felt by Fuller's team about this, grew an interest in world gaming with analog means, which soon got out of Fuller's control. But let me first jump ahead a couple of years and look at Peters again. From what we see here, you may take away that Peters was much more successful in addressing international organizations. Indeed, the use of his map as the camera image for the Brandt or North-South report was one of Peters' triumphs. Not least since the German ex-Chancellor Willy Brandt had presented all members of the independent North-South Commission with the Peters map as a present when it took up work in 1977. And this was only one of Peters' many successes with international organizations and INGOs. Both the United Nations Children's Fund and UNESCO used the map on occasion, as did the United Nations Development Programme, but also NGOs such as Oxfam, for instance. So great was the demand for the map that by 1982, Peters had distributed some 2.4 million copies of a map poster. In 1987, cartographer Peter Vujakovic calculated that around two-thirds of British third world organizations were in some way using the Peters map. Yet these successes also became rather double-edged. Peters had to adapt to an unexpected, even overwhelming demand, not least by former Christian missionary organizations, which he detested. In fact, this map originated as a side project. In the mid-1960s, Peters wanted to follow up the synchronoptical world history with an historical atlas. After having discovered the Mercator distortions, he created a first rudimentary world map of his own as a sort of novelty to help sell his history atlas. For the same reason, as a mere PR stunt meant to generate attention for his atlas, he tried to create a scandal by attacking German state broadcasters for the ethnocentrism evinced by their use of the Mercator projection as backdrops to the news reporting, as can be seen in this invitation to the 1973 Bonn press conference, where he first presented the map to a large number of media representatives. Yet unsuspected dynamics evolved here too. His map received much, atten- much more attention than imagined, and not just positive attention. After rather wildly witnessing the Peters hype for a couple of years, the German Cartographical Society started lobbying heavily against Peters, who spent much of the late 1970s and 1980s fighting against the increasingly irate cartographic institutions, characteristically digging himself ever deeper into the untenable position that his map was indeed the only correct one to exist. But ironically, neither the professionals nor Peters himself fully realized that something else was going on. And at this point, I can finally sort of discuss Peters and Fuller together. Both of my protagonists were taken by surprise by the fact that their works were used for goals quite alien to them. Most striking in this respect are the many kind of role-playing exercises, which we can see here. Peter's map was used by the youth organization of the aforementioned DGB Labor Union Association to point towards the very unequal life chances young people's contemporaries face in the rest of the world. 
And FOLAS Map 2 was used in school and university projects aimed at making young people aware of global inequality and the hard choices which this entailed for them personally with regards to their resource-intensive lifestyles. In the 1970s and 80s, both protagonists' ideas became somewhat corrupted when integrated into a type of global education geared towards making global minds, minds which could conceive, for instance, of the unfairness of trading relations between North and South by transcending perspectives and viewing their own societies with other people's eyes. In extreme cases, this could lead up to renunciations of Western modernity as a whole, looking towards indigenous knowledge as better suited to overcoming the human predicament in the age of limits, as can be seen in the fact that Fuller's publications now cropped up on reading lists that also included literature on Buddhist economics by authors such as E.F. Schumacher. Clearly, something changed, especially when we compare Schumacher's arguing for a return to the human scale with Fuller's techno-utopianism, which suddenly began looking very old-fashioned in the late 1970s. Given his critique of Eurocentrism, Peters may at first seem less out of time and place than Fuller. But importantly, Peters never dropped the socialist vocabulary of liberation and class war, and he never stopped regarding the nation-state as the agent of history. When in 1989, Peters finally launched his atlas, which in fact had turned from a historical one to a more conventional geographical atlas using his projection and only his projection, it proved to be quite an embarrassment for the Swiss Committee for UNICEF, which had financed the endeavor. The texts accompanying many thematic web maps were full of praise for the communist bloc whose victory in the Cold War it portrayed as imminent, which is rather ironic in 1989. But more importantly, until his death in 2002, Peters could not make himself acknowledge that his globalist goals were best served by admitting that his map was just one of many ways to see the world, as his American publishers promoted it, in fact, going around his back. Strikingly, this was in stark contrast to his enemies, the professional cartographers, who soon looked back on the controversy around his map as the turning point towards a postmodern cartography, post-Peters cartography, as they called it, one much more reflective of the multiplicity of users and interpretations of their products. I would argue that all of this points to a new kind of globalism, to which many factors contributed, of course. In the case of Fuller, we can see how his high modernist ideals and ideas began to slide with his countercultural disciples of the late 1960s, such as famous Californian hippie Svengali Stuart Brand, who placed much more emphasis on DIY practices seen both as self-empowering and environmentally friendly, if not modeled on the limited natural systems, such as the Earth's biosphere. In addition, in the early 1970s, these groups became increasingly concerned with population problems, embracing a neo-Malthusianism which ran counter to everything Fuller believed in. Importantly, while being perceived as outsiders, even underdogs had served both Fuller and Peters rather well from the late 1960s on. Fuller, for instance, was always happily pointing out that he had dropped out of Harvard in front of audiences of young people. The image of the world game I showed you earlier is a case in point with regards to his losing control of his narrative. The 1970s growing interest in the world game overwhelmed him, not least since much of what was done to Fuller amounted to, and I quote, self-centered nebulous tea groups emasculating his ideas, end quote. That did not keep many of his former collaborators from establishing small companies in the education sector after Fuller died in 1983, capitalizing on the self-critical trend of the time. What was once conceived as a means of enhancing geographical thinking 
thinking skills in order to make even better use of technology for material gains could now be used as a relativist tool, a fact which some of his ex-fans were urgently aware of. Fuller's archives at Stanford University, on which I based my research, are full of correspondence from the late 1970s that has the air of letters of goodbye by former admirers. And that this points to a new ethics of individual agency and of renouncing one's privileges. This mirrors the fate of the Peters map. Peters' audience in the 1970s at least bent towards the alternative milieu, its moralist posturing also blending well into the Christian activism of this time. It is a shift from a more politicized third world solidarity established in the context of new left politics and of course decolonization to a more general critique of Western expertise within the West that we come upon here. Increasingly wary of large-scale attempts at changing or even just explaining the world, the respective actors rejected both Marxist interpretations and modernization theory, pointing to the apparent failures of industrialization-focused development strategies, as well as to global dependencies with a long history. Thus, rather than mass mobilization and technology, these new globalists identified individual lifestyles as leverage point, often also lamenting the emptiness of Western consumer culture. Historians have recently pointed to the fact that early fair trade activism too was conceived of as an educational practice in the beginning, rather than as an actual attempt to change the structure of the global commodity trade. It's no surprise that the Peters map was often sold in what in Germany is called Weltleben. But I'm even more interested in the highly moralistic didactic strategies of what was called global or development education or Entwicklungspolitische Bildung in West Germany aimed at what one might call a glocalized subjectivity, or at least a moral selving, that framed everyday action as a means of becoming a global citizen. This education gravitated towards media that helped compare standards of living in the world as a first step towards redistribution by means of individual action. And it's, it's this kind of practice which is evident in the map I showed you in the beginning, which of course was drawn by a participant of an unofficial World Game Workshop in 1973. So let me come to a short conclusion. While Fuller epitomized the optimism of 1960s future-oriented globalism based on notions of large-scale planning and technological progress, Peters rose to fame in the context of a rather more self-critical moralist globalism, which gained traction in the 1970s and 80s, pointing to colonialism and ethnocentrism as barriers to a more just world society, one best overcome by means of individual action. Yet both were taken by surprise by this new ethical individualized globalism, or maybe I should call it globalism, a global view that went along with increasing mistrust in experts, institutions, and a focus on one's own local agency, not doing more with less, but being less impactful. I'd say. So what can we take away from this observation? As I put it in my abstract to this talk, clearly, and this lecture series attests to it, there's a new trend towards historicizing the globe, which certainly has much to do with recent political confrontations that crystallize around terms such as globalism and the so-called global cosmopolitan elite, terms used by right-wing populists, which are often more or less overly anti-Semitic, but which have nevertheless forced liberal intellectuals to think harder about the implicit normative assumptions of their theoretical approaches to transnational and global history as well. Scholars such as Jürgen Osterhammel, Lynn Hunt and Kenneth Pomerans have for some years now pointed to the fact that historiography too was globalized in rather specific ways, especially in the 1990s, 
and that there's a danger in overlooking how neoliberal definitions of the global might use us while we use them, as Pomerantz puts it. Also, the global plays an interesting role in the eco-criticism by thinkers such as Bruno Latour or Philippe Descolas, which have pointed to high globality as one of the obstacles blocking the path to action in the Anthropocene. The very idea of global political arrangements or agreements or environmental actions being part of the problem rather than a solution. And I find it very interesting, by the way, how this view resembles 1970s discourses on indigenous cultures to some extent. Unsurprisingly, a number of scholars, intellectual historians such as Benjamin Laser or the aforementioned Duncan Bell, have recently argued that historical concepts of the global are under research. Others have noted that to grasp what made specific understandings of the global plausible at a given time, we have to look more closely at media representing phenomena such as global connectivity, but also comparisons between different parts of the world. Bettina Heinze in Germany, Daniel Speichassé in Switzerland, Kaspar Silvest in Denmark, all propose to look closer at practices of world-making, of creating evidence of the global. As I hope to have demonstrated, given such recommendations, it can be helpful to return to the earth and look at the history of globalism through the prism of both biography and media, if we want to pinpoint shifts in Western political cultures during the 20th century. This may also open up new perspectives on the history of the present. Both Peters and Fuller regarded visual communication as a direct democratic way of conveying their ideas, posing less of an intellectual hurdle. And this, in fact, is the rare case of a modernist ideas which has only grown stronger since, I would argue. But maybe the same can be said of the notions of the notions of local responsibility that both protagonists help bring about, if involuntarily or reluctantly, a subjectivation of politics in global terms, which is probably unprecedented in modern history and which may still inform our decision-making when we buy fair trade products, when we think about our individual ecological footprint, and maybe even when we do global history. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.